0: Welcome everyone to the Two Real Cinema Club. My name is Andres Lorente, And I am James Uzica. And every episode on the Two Real Cinema Club we watch two movies. We watch a new movie and we watch an old movie that shares something in common with the new movie. Um, And uh, this time around, dark tales about the American West. So we are looking at the new Martin Scorsese picture, Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, and comparing it to 1969, Sergio Leone picture "Once Upon a Time in the West," which
1: combined how many hours? Six hours of
0: films. Six, at least six hours. I think maybe slightly over six hours. Yes, these are these were both long films. I've planned things terribly this week. We were we were away last week. Uh, so it's it's um, half past nine in the evening here, and I have ended up watching both of these very very long films today, <laughs> and doing all the research. I mean, this is, this is real schoolboy does his homework on the bus Cramming. on the way to school yeah. podcasting. Uh, so, so I have only just finished watching the, these two enormously long films, and they are they're very long. Yeah, they are very long, and at least one of them I think is longer than it needed to be. Oh, at least yes, maybe all of them, all two of them. <laughs> Yeah, two doesn't feel like a big enough number to describe these two films. <laughs> well, they are both epic for sure.
1: We'll try and make this a less than epic. Oh, we'll have no trouble making this a less than epic podcast. <laughs> if we can get it done in an hour and a half or so, uh, we would be very wise to...
0: We will have saved everybody a lot of time. We should do a popcorn counter sometime on why all these films are so long. That is a good point. Why are all these films so long? Yeah, you're right. We Let's discuss that later, actually. You're right. And yeah. Do we do socials? No. Yeah. Let's not do socials this time. Let's be anti-social. Well, I, th- I think we, we should do it. I, I, I'm now sick of asking people to like and subscribe when they haven't even heard us do anything. So we're going to save our socials for the end. And um, as the YouTubers say, we're going to get straight into it. Oh, God. Which is, what, which is what the YouTubers say before then going on to say, please make sure to like and subscribe and ring the bell. We, we should because uh,
1: people already know that we were off sort of a week. They've listened to two popcorn counters in a row. But they'll also understand that. Right. Right. With that, with that, with that treatment for tropical cakes of love, they probably thought we hit the jackpot and sold that uh, treatment. And
0: no more pod, pod no more. You're right. We did spend the intervening week choosing yachts. You're right. Yes, <laughs> I will. Um, right. Well, uh, killers of the flower moon is yours. Yeah. Um, I'm going to hand it over to you. Yeah. All right.
1: Killers of the flower moon. I saw it in the theater last week. So just I didn't watch it earlier today. Along with the other <laughs> film, um, which I could not do, uh, but I did watch it last Tuesday in the theater with one other person. Um, I believe it comes to Netflix soon or someday. Well, I think it's Apple oh, it's TV. Apple, in the right, UK. it's Apple, it's TV. Apple TV. It's Ooh, coming good. to. Um, so it'll be on Apple TV. It's directed by Martin Scorsese, so it's probably what in the in the number thirties or forties of his films. Um, he wrote it with um, Eric Roth, who. We've looked at Dune. That's an Eric Roth film. We've looked at Forrest Gump. That's an Eric Roth film. Forrest Gump,
0: yeah.
1: Benjamin Button, Ali, The Insider. So he's a, a he's just a pro. He's just a screenwriter, screenwriter, I guess. He can do it. He
0: can do it all. I, I read an interesting fact about Eric Roth um, this week, which is that um, apparently he lost all of his money in the Bernie Madoff Ponzi oh, scheme. Really? <laughs> uh, so he's, he's 78 now, and that obviously is the reason why he's uh-huh. still working because he's broke. I do, <laughs> yeah, I do wonder about that. Why are these old folks who made all this money still? Working and so yeah, Eric Roth is seventy-eight, and uh, Martin Scorsese is now eighty, isn't he? Yeah, and still hammering them out. It's quite, it's quite ambitious to make a a, a two hundred and six minute long film at the age yeah. of eighty. I, you know, good for I you. I wonder
1: how much money De Niro lost in that scheme because he actually went on to play Bernie Madoff in a uh, in a what is it an HBO film or something <laughs> like that. Maybe that he made so much money that he had to make some. He lost so much money that he had to <laughs>
0: lost so much money make it back make make by money. playing
1: Madoff himself. So whew, these guys, they're all interconnected. <laughs> Um, And it's sort of a connection because these are people who've been working with uh, Scorsese in the last few films. Jesse Plemons has a smallish role as Tom uh, Tom White later on in the film. Right. An investigator with the uh, Bureau of Investigation, newly formed by the U.S. government in the 1920s. Um, DiCaprio's done a number of these films with Scorsese now. He plays Ernest Burkhart. Robert De Niro is uh, DiCaprio's uncle, William King Hale. Um, It also features Lily Gladstone as Molly Burkhart and... Ooh, a late substitution. Brendan Fraser comes in at the end as W. S. Hamilton. <laughs> yes, at the very yeah. end. Yeah, it's a couple of minutes to chew up at the very end, but I think the other actors have chewed the scenes by then. So it's a <laughs> tough substitution for him. Um, so it's based on a book by David Gran, which I don't, I have not read. I'm sure you did. You read the book and watch the two films. Oh, I've all let in you one down day?
0: this week. Weirdly, I have not uh, read the book of the film okay. this week. How disappointing! Um, I think it's. It's either historical
1: fiction or it's just an historical um, retelling of this story. I'm not really sure.
0: Yeah, I, I had the impression it was a non-fiction yeah. book. Yeah. Um, I kept writing the name
1: Robbie Robertson down as I was in the theatre. Um, the music was done by the recently late and long great Robbie Robertson of the band. Died this mm. summer. Um, and this film probably will... I think it's going to go down... For me, it's one of Scorsese's better films in the last... 20 or 30 years. Um, But I think it's also just a masterpiece of scoring by Robertson. He did a great job. Masterful production design by Jack Fisk, um, who mm. also did
0: *There Will Be Blood*, which we just looked at a couple weeks back. Ah, yeah, okay, well that makes sense. Yeah, the it?
1: period details are incredible; um, just painstakingly constructed entire towns and uh, and bars and pool rooms and things like that. So it's fantastic. It is. It's
0: very lavish, yeah. isn't it? I don't know how much money Apple gave Scorsese to make this film, but it's yeah, it's they they, they, they the money is on the screen. Yeah, I think the budget, in as far as IMDb con- is concerned.
1: It's roughly two hundred million dollars. I don't know if that all comes from Oof. Apple or where it comes from, but um, and also the editing by a film shoemaker who's done a lot of Scorsese's films is just fantastic. So I think it's it's the kind of thing where it's really just a an A list um, in every of the important uh, filmmaking positions on this. And without the the editing and without the music and without the set design and production design, I think this would have been a train wreck. It could have been. It had that potential yeah. anyway. So filmmaking even if it's a difficult subject in the right hands can be great so should i tell you a story oh tell me the story yeah Bsk. there's always that sound Psk! before we start the things <laughs> <laughs> It starts in Osage country where the um, often moved indigenous people have been uh, relocated. It looks to, we get some great backstory on the Osage people. It seems like they've been kicked out of one territory or another by the U.S. government. Uh, But now they are greasy rich with oil money. um, And they are also still sort of obedient to these government agents who manage their money for them because they have been deemed as incompetence mm. so it's this crazy thing where you're really seeing uh, these indigenous people in fancy cars just when the cars were first really coming out and magnificent clothing and beautiful homes and furniture um but they sort of have to answer to these government agents for an allowance basically um yeah it's a lot of great archival and probably fake archival footage that sets the stage it must
0: be yeah yeah
1: but it's well done again everything is really well done um Leo sort of has this ever-scowling look uh, for the whole film. He's Ernest Burkhart. He arrives at the request of his uncle Bob De Niro's William King Hale. And Hale has sort of ingratiated himself into the Osage people and their culture and their community. Uh, and he's busy milking them for money via various schemes. Um, Ernest is sort of just back from World War I, it looks like, where he was served yeah. as a, like a mess uh, mess hall chef or a kitchen chef. Um, hasn't really seen any action. It doesn't seem like, you know, like war action. Um, but he starts driving a cab for Lily Gladstone's uh, Molly Burkhart. They sort of fall in love. Not sure how sincere it is, uh, but in part <laughs> so Ernest can marry into the family and get the head rights to their oil money. So it seems like the, the community divides up some of the profits from all these oil rigs that are on um, their land. And I was reminded, I, I listened to another podcast. I'll talk about this later, too. <laughs> Oops, sorry. But it um, it was about how um, Jack Fisk, who did the production design on this, actually constructed that oil well we saw in There Will Be Blood. So that was not um, oh! CGI. We were talking about that. I remember he actually constructed a 100-foot-tall wooden oil rig. So some of these in the film actually might be... Recycled? Maybe just grabbed that one from the previous film twenty years ago and stuck it up in a different place in in, in Oklahoma. I
0: wondered how many of the Origs in this film are CGI.
1: I th- because I think um, most, if not all, but yeah, he's such a uh, freak for detail that maybe one or two of them, when they were closer up, uh, were uh, his own construction, but. Um, Through some voiceovers of Molly, we learn that many of the Osage have been dying or murdered with no investigation from local or state authorities. Um, But by the end of Act One, Ernest and Molly are married, and I think he takes her name, which is interesting. I don't think he, I think she was a Burkhart to begin with. I'm not sure about that, but I I assumed it was for legal rights. and the question really is, does he marry her for love or for the oil under mm. all that Osage crop land? I don't want to go too much farther without
0: a spoiler bell. We should we should ring the spoiler bell. Yeah. I've got, I have got a couple of things yeah. to say before the spoiler please, bell goes please. off. yeah, go ahead. So you know, before we spoil it for everybody else, yeah. I was just going to volunteer, and you can probably tell this just from you know, the summary that you've given so far, that I, I would call this Martin Scorsese film type A. Oh. I, I mean, I, you know, I, like, I don't love Martin Scorsese. I think when he's good, he's great. Yeah. He has made some not-so-good pictures. You know, I don't know whether you've seen Hugo. You know, not-so-good. Shutter Island, Ugh. I really didn't like. Nope. You know, I, haven't, I never saw The Irishman, but I haven't heard one good thing about it. Long? <laughs> it's long? <laughs> um, Cape Fear, I thought, was, you know, was a nasty film. Um, and, you know, I don't think they've all been great, but when they are great... Um, you know, they are great with a capital G. And this film, like I think, fits into that kind of that folder along with Goodfellas or yeah. Casino yeah. or Gangs of New York or The Departed. It's kind of, you know, it's 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 one of those. There's lots of characters, um, regular bursts of extreme violence. Yeah. Um, you know, it it's, it's kind of you know, it fits into that bit of his canon. Yeah, you know, maybe I'll kind of come back to what I sort of expect from Scorsese and what yeah. Uh, I kind of you know w- would like to see maybe later, yep. um, but I, I I think you know you can announce that without spoiling anything about the film. It's it's Scorsese film type. A. Yes,
1: yeah, I like that. Oh, sh- shall I ring the bell? Well, you've spoiled it. I don't think we we can
0: cancel the podcast <laughs> at this point. <laughs> shall I, I I ring the bell? Ring like, um, yeah, in retrospect, okay.
1: Too long, too loud. But we'll let it ring a long time because now they don't need to hear anything. So, ah, uh, really <laughs> join of... us next week for. Uh... <laughs> right, so so okay, spoil away. All right, King Hale has his hands in everything. Um, there are these brazen poisonings and murders that uh, sort of taint the second act of the film. It's just mostly about people dying uh, prematurely. All of Molly's sisters and her mother are dying, um, and Ernest, uh, as a result, stands to inherit their assets. So it's it's pretty transparent what everyone's doing, and I think that that's one thing that makes this film kind of uncomfortable to watch because it's so clear what's happening, and yet uh, the Osage seem to be either going along with it or they're just um, they don't have enough power to get investigations going and try and find
0: out who's been killing all the the Osage. Um, I mean, and not only is the plot you know, obvious to the to the characters and to the audience, yeah. but also the, you know, the, the violence itself. It's worth saying is extremely explicit, yeah, isn't yeah. it? It's explicit. It, the camera yeah. does not shy away from people being shot. Yeah, um, I suppose intended to shock. Like Scorsese
1: has, he's not squeamish about these kinds of scenes and putting squibs on people and just splattering everyone with blood and getting the whole crew kind of messy. And, and stained, he's not. He's, he's the right director for this. For 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 me, I think because this is a like a proper historical violence, it seems really appropriate. Whereas if it's if if it's glorified um, mafioso violence, it just seems a little excessive at times. Um, right. Mm, yeah. So I, I think you know it's appropriate, if, and I think it's honest. That's one thing about this film that I really love. to think it's a very honest film. Um, there are a bunch of these arranged mixed marriages where. Um, White men marry Osage women, and even Ernest's brother goes so far as to be an accomplice in the murder of his own wife, all for financial gain— so you can see how how low these guys are sinking uh yeah. for the money. Um and I think the racism in this film is overt. It's honest. They're grandparents of mixed-race children who curse their own bloodlines. Yeah. Um the Osage are often referred to as savage or uncivilized. Um yet all these ruses continue uninterrupted. We we see a number of these marriages sort of being set up and actually going all the way to the services and the celebrations for the marriage. Um and the whites in town are overcharging the Osage for everything, such as funeral services or food and medicine. Um, and the medicine kick or that medicine angle is sort of lifted up because Molly's diabetic and insulin sort of just arrives in town with this one little caveat. Ernest has to help her with her shots, um, mm. but will also give her a little something else to calm her down. I was doing air quotes there, calm her down. <laughs> and Dr. Razor, I was wondering if you would want to comment on the ethical dilemma of a husband administering poison to his own wife. Is there any problem with <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's a real ethical grey area. You're right. Yeah, I'm not really sure what to think about that. I did spend some of the time thinking, what is the, what is the sedative that he is administering? Yeah, I'm guessing to it would be a barbiturate. Yeah. If they did say what it was, I didn't catch it, but I'm guessing it's a barbiturate okay. he's, he's giving it.
1: So that would all—I mean, she's obviously—but she seems so weak and so debilitated. I think of diabetes as being this sort of long game illness, but. I don't know the exact timeline on her illness part of the film, but it doesn't seem like it's, you know, like more than a year or something like that. Um, and she seems to get weaker and weaker. And, and De Niro says that thing about like calming her down or, uh, making life easy for her. I don't know what it is, but, um, it, it, yeah, I imagine it was something like an opiate or a barbiturate or something. Um, I will say that this film ranks with Barbie on its wokeness. I think it's really an honest exposition of greed and white power via this, you know, close examination of just one period in one yeah. place and one event or sequence of events in U.S. history. So, um,
0: I appreciate that. It doesn't, doesn't try to sugar the pill, does it? No, not it's... at all.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's And I think that's a, it's a great moment. And there, there's some other stuff that I'll get to that happens at the same time in, in U.S. history that pairs very well with this as storytelling anyway. Um, Despite her illness, Molly starts trying to get an investigation of her own going. She hires this detective. She goes to Washington, D.C. to actually meet with the the president at that time, which I think was Calvin Coolidge. Um, She and the Osage are no match for white men who will do absolutely anything for money and then more of it, more money. Mm. Um, There are nods to the Ku Klux Klan, which is sort of gaining steam at this point in U.S. history, and the firebombings of Tulsa – Oklahoma's Black Wall Street, um, which happened about the same time. Um, Excuse me. Um, It sort of settles all this work solidly into U.S. history. So this is all going on at the same time. And uh, this story takes place in, I'm not really sure exactly what part of Oklahoma, but the Tulsa um, Wall Street bombing was also, um, Tulsa is also in Oklahoma. So all in the same state. Um, Ernest goes so low as to orchestrate the murders of Molly's first husband so King Hale can make a claim on a life insurance policy. He also, um, orchestrates his uh, sister-in-law's death through a firebombing of her house, uh, just doors away from his own house. Yeah. Pretty low. Um, so that gets us sort of to the third act, which is, I think we'll have to talk about this, but, um, Things have been long already. We're probably two and a half hours into the film at this point, maybe. Yeah, more something though. like that, yeah. And that's when Jesse Clemens arrives. He's Jim White. He comes to D.C. from this newly formed Bureau of Investigation. I think he was a Texas Ranger, so he's got uh, investigation experience and lawman experience. Um, he wants to check out on the murders. He starts to very soon put some pressure on Ernest, who is still poisoning his wife, quite knowingly and obediently. Uh, uh, Jim White and his team go undercover. They build this case largely against King Hale, the Nero character, um, who has undertaken a violent sort of cover up to hide his guilt. So there's just more bloodshed in third act. Um, he also has Ernest. Sign- it's a real yeah.
0: kind of like Godfather sequence, isn't it? I yeah. think when he yep. yeah he kind of arranges for most of his co-conspirators to sort of kill each other. Yes, by like kind of like tipping them off to yeah. to each other and yeah. then just letting them you know pull their own triggers. It's yeah. So you know it's it's a uh, yeah, it does feel kind of like Godfather-like or Hamlet-like or something like that, just suddenly yeah. all these players in the film it's, it's right
1: in his wheelhouse anyway, that's for sure. Um, and it's because all these guys could testify each, against each other and uh, it sort of does start happening that way. Um, King Hale also has Ernest sign his head rights over to him, which is, it just looks like this Leonardo DiCaprio just signing his own death sentence from his, his <laughs> uncle's going to do him into. It's just It's a wonderful scene actually, but um, it just shows you again how low people are going. Um, after some back and forth, It happens so late that it kind of becomes inconsequential, but Ernest eventually will testify against uh, his uncle. Uh, In the process, though, he basically implicates himself in attempted murder and accomplished a murder, and bad people go to jail this time. Yeah. Um, The film ends, I I love the last scene, it ends on this drum circle filmed via drone, so it's beautiful, it's this colorful uh, dance where um, some Osage people are spinning around this drum circle, Hundreds of them, different colors,
0: and they're uh, dancing to the to the drum. Um, it's a pretty good ending. I, I thought you were going to say something different about oh. the ending, which is before this drum circle. Oh, oh, oh yes, there's a <laughs> there, there is a there is a fascinating five minutes where, like, the story yeah, is yeah. tied up, yeah, yeah. in the form of a radio, a play, radio play reenactment yeah. of the new story, yeah, yeah. So it's like happens on a stage with an orchestra yes. and there are actors doing live sound effects. Yes. Scorsese turns up and makes a cameo as a radio announcer. That's right. Like those last five minutes, I think they come out of left field, but they're a delight to watch.
1: It's, yeah, it's pretty odd seeing all the sound effects that go into it and the old timey thing and the Lucky Strikes advertisement in the background. <laughs> um, it is. It's almost a totally different short film. Uh, I think Jack White from the White Stripes plays one of those uh actors on stage. Oh, does he? Yeah, there's some ca- there's some <laughs> cameos in here that are wild, but um yes, that is it is this retelling and I imagine they were just recreating that something that was recorded for
0: audio and they just turned it into a um a visual. I think it's masterfully done. It looks very good. No, so I'm guessing there was some radio radio show which was based on the case books of the FBI, and this yeah. is what that was. That's like one
1: of the episodes. It's like um, these the, these murder TV shows that uh, we see these days where they investigate a murder. We have them a lot of them in the United States because we've got so
0: much raw material. Maybe you don't have <laughs> these in
1: England, but
0: <laughs> well, it's like I feel like most hit podcasts are about somebody being murdered. Yeah, that's aren't true. They? Yeah, I mean, exactly. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, th- those last five minutes kind of reminded me about. The Scorsese that I was hoping to see—I I think he's kind of—he's at his best when he's experimenting, yeah. Like when he's making, you know, After Hours or King of Comedy, yeah, or you know, New York, New York, yeah. or even like The Last Temptation of Christ, you know, an experimental film about Judas Iscariot. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the Scorsese I'm sort of most interested in seeing. Yeah. Whereas, you're know, very extremely competent, though. Um, Killers of the Flower Moon is—it feels a little bit. To me, like, Scorsese is making a film that looks like a homage to other Scorsese films. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's 80. He's allowed to do what he wants. Absolutely, yeah. You know, good for him. You know, I'm guessing this is what he wants to do. Well, great. And it's, you know, and it's a story that should be told and he's told it very well. Yeah. But those last five minutes of playful invention of the camera concentrates on people doing, you know, live sound effects for a radio play. And they really kind of delve into that. I thought that was fascinating and, you know, a great surprise. I would personally... Although I, you know, I'm not sure whether I enjoyed this film, but I appreciated it, and I thought it was good. But I would prefer to have seen the film, which was the story of the radio show that does reenactments of the FBI casebook, and you know, and, and um, you know, a film that was about those characters and that recording and that world. I probably would have preferred to see those last five minutes stretched out to a whole feature length. Perhaps this is me. It's puzzling
1: because you know, you're three 20, three hours twenty minutes into it. And I think what you've got is in the first three hour 20 minutes, I think you've got the story that Americans are not used to, this very deliberate, very honest telling. And then the last five minutes are almost a retelling in the way that Americans actually get a lot of their history, which is with advertisements (laughs) and songs and entertainment um, and maybe not quite as – honest about the actual events of, of u.s history so it, it it's an interesting contrast because it's so outweighed right i mean it's it's five minutes it's quite entertaining and it, it comes to the very end it is a little bizarre um, <laughs> but i think you're right it's great filmmaking and scorsese comes on himself and sort of delivers the uh the eulogy for molly gladstone he's talks about her mm. death um but they are yeah they are two very different films very different in length and very different <laughs> in, uh, in
0: tone and texture i guess I, we often like to talk about, you know, the writing of these films. And um, that's one interesting thing, which um, I was really about Eric Roth. Apparently, he never, ever um, sends any of his scripts electronically. He he writes um, on a computer not connected to the Internet and he only prints things off. That's the only way his scripts wow. are distributed. but um, So, you know, I haven't read the script. But uh, it's interesting to comment on what one can glean about the script from the film. And the thing which really stood out to me... Um, is that you know what well, I don't think there is a lot of character development in this film, um, though I enjoyed it. You know Leonardo's Ernest, like he's a he's this kind of gullible, easily led numbskull, basically, isn't he? Right, yeah. right from the start of the film, and he's you know and he's pretty much the same idiot by the end of the film. Yeah. Um, he's uh, he's one of those character types that fit into my least favorite character types box. He's the he's the character who does what he's told. Basically, he's told to commit crimes yeah. by Robert De Niro, so he goes and commits these crimes. Yeah. He's told to shop in his co-conspirators by Jesse Clemens, and so he shops them in. He's basically he's just you know this not very bright guy who does the thing that he's told. And I uh, this is something that I often come back to. I think proper drama is about someone making a decision or a choice. And I'm not really sure that we really see him make a decision for himself in the whole movie. Um, you know, he's largely just being sort of pushed this way and then being pushed that way. And I was waiting for there to be some kind of you know standout moment, like you know, the beginning of the third act, when he suddenly looks at himself in the mirror and realizes, yeah. no, this is wrong. I yeah. shouldn't be doing this. Nope. <laughs> no, I'm gonna try and right the wrongs that I have already done, I'm going to try and undo some of my crimes or at least, you know, pay the price. Yeah. Um, but actually he's just kind of a numbskull all the way through the film, which which kind of makes him a you know, a bit of a poor character to centre a story on, I thought. I mean, he goes through these big events and he's not changed by it. And it's it's kind of the same for Robert De Niro's character as well. Right in this very, very first scene, the first time that we meet him, you know, he's being a bit dodgy and he's being racist and he's explaining what his plan is. And then he stays the same all the yeah. way through, basically. He remains a bit dodgy and racist and continues to explain his plan to people. That's it. Nobody in the film seems to me to have a big change of heart. No one has a big revelation nobody grows or evolves or has an epiphany and i sort of think in a good story one character kind of has to do that so that is one of my big question marks about the film i think you're yeah you're spot on
1: i do think it probably has something to do with the source material if it's really just a a historical Uh, document and they're not over dramatizing it i think that would explain part of it and i think the other thing is that um to a certain extent it's It's a story about power and enabling, I guess, because you've got the people in power um, and the reason they can get away with things is because they do have a DiCaprio, uh, a Burkhart character like that who doesn't question anything and just does what they're told. And I think that that's sort of a it's hard to believe that this could happen, but it believes because it, it can happen because
0: people who follow power blindly just do stuff.
1: Um, that they're told
0: to yeah, do. No, you're right. Yeah, it's, it's human nature, isn't it? You're exactly yeah. right. People do do what they're told. Yeah. I mean, you're right. And
1: to a certain extent, I think the sad thing is, I wish there was more Osage point of view on all of this because the the film is sort of being heralded. There's the Osage languages in there. It's great. There is, I think it was rewritten at one point. I read that it it did embrace the Osage point of view a little bit more than it had, it had in earlier drafts or in in Grant's mm-hmm. book, but um, they, they, these people have been through so much because they've been moved, you know, like relocated. Um, and they, there are many allusions to the fact that they were great warriors, but they don't really fight back directly in this film. They sort of go to, oh, we're going to send someone to Washington D.C. to, to start investigating or to you know, protect us. Um, and it's, it's funny that they are sort of equally obedient to King Hale as well. I mean, yeah. it's, so it's just, I think it's a story about power and, and and even. I think the Osage, as they get wealthy, they sort of uh, emulate the white wealth with the cars and the fancy dress. Um, and they you know according to this film, yep. anyway, they sort of become big spenders, they live quite lavishly. Um, so they they're even following in the the you know the lifestyle of the of the people who are suddenly um, have control over them. So
0: I think it's a lot about power and how people do stuff and are just uh, obedient to power. Yeah. And and this is still, you know, a very contemporary phenomenon, isn't it? People remain obedient to power. People still do the thing that they are told. I mean, yeah, you're exactly right, I suppose. Maybe, you know, that is one of the important themes of the film. Perhaps I'm wrong to kind of challenge it.
1: Uh, No, I think think you're right to challenge it because on a storytelling front, it does make it much less interesting. There's no one who really just tells King Hill to go to hell or, you know, puts any real pressure on him until – you know the the Bureau of Investigation guys come at the very end. It's it's kind of too little, too late. And I think um, for me, the third act, I had some Oppenheimer flashbacks because um, <laughs> the audience already knows everything that's happened, and the investigators do not. So it's it's sort of this massive slowdown in the film, right where we need to get towards a conclusion. Ah, yeah. Um, so it's it's kind of that nuclear meltdown of the library card for um, Oppenheimer in the in the third <laughs> act of. Uh, of that film. Um, It just... It loses a lot of um, momentum and then I know a lot of people are really faulting Brendan Fraser for his performance, but he's not given too much and I will say that the acting, I think, is actually really good throughout this film. I I thought De Niro was... You know, he was De Niro, but he was doing a good job of being De Niro and DiCaprio the same way. I mean, they were were solid. I think it's a well-acted film and it's a well-directed film. So when Fraser comes in and has... Not a whole lot of lines, and he puts on a funny voice, and uh, his his character doesn't do a whole lot. I mean it just doesn't shine very well, so i mean all the all the scenes have been chewed thoroughly by the time he gets there, and he just he looks outclassed <laughs> as a result i mean we're three hours in before he even gets there and Brandon we 're going to have you come in when the film is basically over, and yeah. You're going to get a nomination for that other film you just
0: did anyway, so don't worry about it. Um. It's funny, I, when these people, you know, when when name actors arrive really, really late in the film, it always feels like it's a, it's hey, look, it's that guy moment. It's like, <laughs> yeah. it's like you thought the film was over, but no, look, we had this guy in a cupboard all the time. Yeah. Um, it's interesting you're talking about... Um, contemporary resonance there is a lot of contemporary resonance in this film Definitely. and obviously there's no point making it if it isn't yeah the thing that one of the things that struck me was um all the discussion about the price and availability of insulin yeah um which you know incredibly in the 21st century in some countries still remains you know a big issue yeah. in the u.s i mean some still, people yeah. you know, yeah. without insurance can't get insulin or they have to pay you know crazy over the odds prices for insulin um even though it's a drug without which they will die, it yeah. just seems utterly absurd. <laughs> uh, and, and in the same way, you know, like you know, the film is you know is trying to say a lot about institutional racism, isn't it? Yes, de- definitely. Which is not something that is behind us now. Uh, you know, it's you know, it's explicitly talking about the authorities turning a blind eye to get to to violence against minorities. Yeah. And again, this is not something which is behind us. Yeah. Um, so you know, there is a lot of uh, of. Um, Modern, contemporary reasons why this story is a, the right story to tell now. Yeah. Um, it's uh, one of those stories that makes you ashamed that you know we can look back on history and observe it, and then uh, recognize that we haven't really learned anything since then. Yeah, it's, you know what, what's changed? Not much. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I I thought also that it actually needed
1: to explore that institutional racism a little bit more. Like I didn't really understand this structure of. Society, they they were the Osage were labeled as incompetence, like they couldn't take care of their own finances. So they have this caretaker um, that they have to report to for she's what she's getting meat like her Molly's mother had spent too much money on meat. And she and she needed or she needed some medicine at one point. She has to go to this guy. And it's just this these rich Osage people asking white men for their own money. It was just bizarre. <laughs> and I, I think a little bit more investigation into what that side of the Osage life would have made it, I think, a bit more... It would have given it more depth. I think it would have been more meaningful to me. And and also exploring this idea, like, why aren't they sort of wising up sooner to what all these guys are doing to their culture, how they're invading the culture, how they're um, appropriating all the riches from the oil for themselves through marriages? And you think, well, it's obvious to the audience. It's obvious to everyone. Yeah. What is the thing that prevents them from saying, no more, get the hell out of here. We're not going to intermarry with you at all, all anymore. I mean, it, I'm sure there's, there are reasons there, but I think getting a bit more of that Osage angle on that would really enlighten us, or we'd, we'd have more sympathy for the character. I mean, the story just sort of passes by, and as you said, everyone does sort of what they're supposed to, and it's just the U.S. just clicking all along, as our society always has, and a few, uh, few badasses are just going to call the shots with their money and have control over everyone else.
0: But I think a bit more investigation into the reasons why would be interesting. And in a three-hour-20 film, you know, there is time to explore some of this stuff. There is. I, I, I did feel like a, a lot of the second act felt quite repetitive to me insofar as yeah. I felt like there were many, many scenes of some white people conspiring to to murder an Osage yeah. citizen. And then, you know, they get murdered yeah. you know, right up close to the camera with a you know bullet to, to the head. Yep. You know, and then the body gets hidden. And then we see the same thing again. And I yeah. feel like. You know, we 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 see you know a whole bunch of botched and violent murders yep. again and again yeah, and yeah. again um, to the extent that it's not really furthering the story. Maybe it's providing a bit of you know documentary background, yeah. but it's not moving the story forward. Yeah, you know, maybe it's important to record these events and to show the sheer volume of violence that took place. Yeah. But, um, you know some of that material could have been replaced with character development. yeah, you're right.
1: That's a less is more moment, too. When you have a bunch of murders and it's so obvious who's doing it, um, then it's not very interesting. If there were just one or two murders and you're really unsure, about who's the culprit, um then obviously the film gets shorter, which would be a plus. But also <laughs> there's just I think there's more intrigue and there's more reason to have an investigation and really to, to do some digger deeping. Digger deeping? Deeper digging. Digger deeping.
0: There Jeez. should be a lot more digger deeping I think so. right.
1: <laughs> what does that mean? What is it, what did I say?
0: Digger deeping <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. There's, there's one other thing I will s uh, I will say and then I'm gonna I'm gonna place a call, which is um <laughs> that uh there were some points in the film where I felt like uh, I had been watching two completely different films. Mm. There's a lot of scenes with uh, DiCaprio and De Niro being you know, Hollywood A-list actors yeah. and there's some kind of Hollywood style, Hollywood type stuff of them Hollywooding it up. Mm. <laughs> um, and then a couple of times there are scenes, there's uh, a sort of a fairly lengthy scene where the Osage council um, come and discuss, you know, what's happening and, how they plan to yeah. ask Washington for intervention, yep. and I don't know whether the, the the characters in that scene are played by non professionals, but it felt all of a sudden much more authentic. Yes, and it felt like suddenly we were dipping out of this Hollywood star Hollywooding it yeah. about, yep. and we were seeing like something authentic and genuine. Yeah. It felt like a scene from a different film. Yeah,
1: I agree with you. It was great. I thought it was great, and I think maybe that's because we're just so accustomed to. Having the big actors pushed at us and they, they come with all this baggage, right? You know exactly who they are. You know it's acting. Whereas when you see some unfamiliar faces, then you actually see that it's, oh, that's real acting. These are people who are really capturing something new to us. So we don't come with all these preconceived notions of the, the characters and, and their deliveries and all that. So, Yeah. I, that was noticeable, for sure. Uh, there are a couple, I was going to say, just oh, yeah. there's some fantastic scenes in this film, just visually. Yeah. I love the, there's this quiet moment that uh, Molly and, and Ernest are sort of courting and then the rain comes and uh, they, she just needs to listen to this storm and it's this beautiful storm and I, it's just this wonderful moment of just a little silent space, just something uh, like an aural experience in in this visual work, but didn't, uh, Scorsese gives you the time to do it
0: yeah.
1: I mean, I I wish there were a lot of more editing jobs where it was a much shorter film, but I was I appreciated that <laughs> silence right there. Um I loved um when the when the I guess there are some of the workmen on King Hill's Farm are beating down this fire as they try to extinguish it. Someone set fire to his property. And there are just these images shot through flames that are phenomenal because you just see these sort mm. of almost are extraterrestrial shapes and creatures just batting down this fire. I thought it was just a great image. Um, in the beginning, the Osage warriors are just sort of bathing themselves in oil when they strike oil um, yeah. in the fields. Um, there just There's a lot of great filmmaking here. For me, I think the biggest the biggest barrier is that it feels very novelistic and epic um, when it, it doesn't need to be, and I think we'll, we'll have to talk about length at some point because um, it's just it's long. And when you make an intentional epic, I think you also can make epic mistakes. And I think the third act <laughs> is the third act is kind of that for me. It's just that it, I think most of the story's already been told. We already know so much, and then we're you know we're given another forty five minutes or something like that to. Settle down or let's say cool down phase.
0: Watch somebody else figure out the story yeah. that we already know. Exactly. Yeah. So
1: I think it's just an epic mistake. But um, I think this is one of be- Scorsese's best in years. I mean, for me, his best films are Raging Bull. I love After Hours because it's so different from anything else he's mm. done. And then I I loved this film. It's. I don't think it's perfect by any means. I think it's at least an hour too long, but um, it's – I think it's a team effort I think the acting is very good I think the editing is good which saves the film probably could have been five hours as far as I could tell and then um, I think his directing is good when he needs to be directing but the, the, just the production design is, and the music it's just it all comes together to be a fantastic Scorsese film
0: uh, I'm now going to do that thing that we please. always do with the films that we love which is I'm going to call the Cliché Squat Yes. Cliché Although I I only have one crime to report to the Cliche Squad this week, the name of the crime I wish to report is Robert De Niro. Basically, this is this is like a big prestige picture with one of the greatest directors in the world and, and Robert De Niro turns up and basically he is Robert De yes. Niro. He's kind of turning up and just doing his <laughs> usual thing in the usual way. He, like, he licks his lips and then he nods. Then he says a few words and he scowls, yep. shuffles about a bit. Then he nods, then he licks, licks his lips and then he scowls yeah. again. I mean, it's, it's just, I feel like I've seen him do this for 20 films now. Yeah. That, what? I mean, if he if he's not going to put the effort in for a Martin Scorsese yeah. picture, twenty million, two hundred million dollars. What, what does he put the effort in for anymore? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm not completely sure why he's turning up. I, I, maybe it is the Bernie it's, Madoff thing. It's then. the maybe Bernie Madoff just, thing. He hasn't got, he hasn't got two cents to rub together, yep. and I don't know. But I just, I, I just feel like, oh, I don't know. He's done, you know, a body of great work. Yep. And he is capable of being a different character, but he hasn't been yeah. a different character for <laughs> quite a long
1: time now. It's uh, job security, isn't it? It's just uh, it's a sure <laughs> thing. Marty's going to call him. They're going to make a film. They'll probably <laughs> say makes some money. Even if the film doesn't necessarily make money, um, they will make some money. Yeah, I agree with you 100%, but he is Robert De Niro, and I think he's just he, – he does it capably. He does that real perfectly, <laughs> um, you, and, and so much of it, so much of it is just that residual De Niro from all these years of films. It just comes with the with the hiring of him as the actor. Um, so can't fault him either in the sense that he, he he does exactly what he needs to do in this film and and what he's told. It's like uh, for me, I, I'll make a comparison to John Wayne who I hated forever. I, just, I watched him on these you know Sunday cable television cowboy movies for years and years, and then I realized it's just that he's bringing John Wayne. It's not that he's yeah. he's not an actor anymore. He's just John Wayne. He brings it, and you know exactly <laughs> where you are. There's this sort of safety blanket kind of feel with John Wayne in a film, and I think De Niro's been around. Doing the same thing long enough where he's providing that same service to this film.
0: What's that thing about you know, if, if you go to eat McDonald's in any country in the world, it's always McDonald's, yeah. isn't it? This it's, is:: what yep, De Niro is turned into the Big Mac of cinema. Exactly. <laughs> it's quality
1: control. It's the same everywhere, so I think that's it. It'd be it'd be fun to see this movie in a different language, just dubbed up, so that you could see De Niro at least with a different voice in Italian or something like that, or, or Uzbek. I don't know some language that is completely unfamiliar to De Niro. That way, you'd get a different De Niro performance. But otherwise, you know, you get exactly what you're paying for. I think. I have I, I have a small cliche. Too. Oh yes, yes, yeah. yes. Mine is um, also just one. Um, Jail cells, these absolutely insecure jail cells, (laughs) which are just these sort of free cubes, probably open tops too that you could climb out. There's these freestanding bars all around. And they just seemed—I've seen this in a lot of films—but they just seemed very unrealistic, especially given the attention to detail everywhere else in this film. And and maybe I'm wrong that maybe in the 1920s in the United States these these jail cells—you could practically—you could squeeze yourself between these bars, basically. Um, so and yeah, you get free conversations between people, no plumbing or anything like that. By the way, I couldn't even see if there was a bucket in there for them to do their business, but. Uh, Insecure jail cells. That's my um, cliche, I think, and that might just be uh, for period films. Probably and, and, you know, think...
0: and obviously, when you put someone in jail, you should put them in the cell opposite their co-conspirator, so yeah, that they exactly. can discuss important plot points. <laughs> 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 ah, save us, save us! Right, we, we should have. A, let's have a break. Uh, yeah, uh, my bladder certainly needed a break after this film. Uh, uh, we will uh, come back with a slightly shorter film but only slightly (laughs) we'll come back after the break and we will talk about Once Upon a Time
1: if you're like me you probably haven't seen the entirety of your pinky toes since the 1990s. (laughs) Mine are tucked 30 to 50 percent under the ring finger toe and are a mere semblance of their evolutionary selves. And yet, your distant ancestors remember the days when they could climb trees with the help of those disappearing digits. Now we can all remember the days of no more disappearing toes vibrams give a high five and a high ten and a big hello to numbers five and ten vibram we're the folks who make the funny looking finger toe shoes you've seen them they look like fingered gloves for your feet
0: i have seen those you have seen them
1: well they come in a wide variety of colors and styles made for running walking leisure time and slippering time I'm glad to use the word "wide" there.
0: That seems very appropriate. a Wide variety. Oh, they they
1: they. I didn't I didn't use that. This is coming directly from the Vibram Corporation from the sponsor. Yeah, so this is good writing from them. They'll, they'll see There's <laughs> some wordplay. Wordplay, wear play and wordplay. Um, oh, good. Wear them inside, outside, or inside and outside. <laughs> I hear that the two real cinema club family members like to don Vibram finger socks when snuggling in for a uh, film screening or listening to their favorite podcast, this one, (laughs) or even as they slumber and see the films of their own lives in their dream states, all the while pampering the toes with a gentle foot stretch and steady toe separation. You only thought you knew what digital independence was. Now you can have it, and without that cumbersome internet. I've been wearing Vibram socks and shoes for just a little while, and have already measured 30% more separation and flexibility between my toes. <laughs> Vibrams have given me two new toes in just four months. That's two toes per month. And at this rate, I'll have 14 toes by Christmas. <laughs> Speaking of which, Vibrams make a great Christmas gift or the perfect stocking stuffer. Oh! tis always the season for Vibrams. Vibrams don't just start conversations. They start the important process of improved balance and greater foot flexibility. Vibram has always made hearty souls. Now they also make happy souls. Welcome to a new day of toe independence. So... Hello again to numbers 5 and 10. Say goodbye to those toes that once said goodbye. Spread your toes, spread your roots, then spread your wings with Vibram. I've got to get a pair of those. You've sold them to me. I've got the socks. They're fantastic. I put them on at night so that I'm separating my toes at night. And then I wear a a very simple, like a slip-on shoe that, boy, the first month or so, it hurt.
0: It hurt. Ah, I, and do you find that you can climb a tree more easily now? Absolutely, I can walk up a tree. I can <laughs> walk up. <I'm wrong>. They're <laughs> <fine> man. <rooms
1: now. laughs> That's the wrong Sergio Leone film Darn it (laughs) I wish I had a harmonica though I don't have one But I could play it just about as well as Charles Bronson could play his harmonica I
0: think Yeah, there was was some slightly strange harmonica playing in this film We have watched Once Upon a Time in the West The 1968 Sergio Leone film And I'm going to start with a confession Which is Uh I have never seen a whole Sergio Leone film before today Oh um so I feel like they were kind of always sort of on the television at Christmas in the background. And I never particularly yeah. liked Westerns as a oh, okay. boy, and they sort of largely passed me by. Ah. My mother's father, my grandfather, loved westerns. Yeah. Um and you would uh, he would always be watching Bonanza on the television <laughs> when we'd <would> go over <laughs> on Sunday afternoon. Westerns were you know, a big thing for him, and I could not see the appeal. Yeah. And uh, they have passed me by. Oh. Uh it's a little bit like um uh, apparently, you know, my parents told me until I was like, I don't know, seven or eight or something like that, I had never eaten chocolate. And they used to offer me chocolate. And I would say, oh, mm. nasty brown stuff. I don't want that. Oh. And then at the age of eight, you know, I eventually I was persuaded to try a chocolate. And my whole cho- my life changed. Yeah. My God. And in the same way that I I never had a proper Indian meal out until mm. I was 19. Yeah. And I was at university and my friend Baz came to visit for the weekend. And, and he said, oh, well, let's go to an Indian. I'd never been to an Indian restaurant before. And so you know he explained how to order and what to have, yeah. and uh, it's like a whole world opened up in front of me. I can still remember that that meal. And uh, today I've had a similar experience. I've never seen a whole Sergio N- only film t- till today, and I loved it. Yeah, um, but I didn't choose this film. I know uh, you chose this film. I, I have a question for yeah, you. Why yeah. did you choose oh. this film to to go up against Killers of the Flower Moon? Do you have any other questions for me, Councilman? Well, I should probably
1: preface by saying, if I had known that you had never seen a Spaghetti Western, I would have said, you got to see The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Ah. That's that's the best I think but uh, there were a lot I saw a ton of these films because again cable television back in the day and they would do these either Clint Eastwood or Sergio Leone weeks and I'd just digest five of these films in a week um, <laughs> this one I saw much later I was an adult when I saw this one and I my confession is I can barely remember this film it's been probably 30 years or close to it mm-hmm. but I remember it well enough where um, it seemed like it would fill fit in well with the killers of the Flower Moon because of just this exploitation of people or places or this exploration of the lawlessness and the West. So it seemed like the right uh, angle for me. If I have any regrets, it's just, I didn't, I didn't know they were both going to be so long. So (laughs) when we planned the podcast, that's when I realized, Oh, it's six hours total films. And, um, that's a lot. That's a lot. But, um, This is, uh, yeah, this is a classic. I'm glad we saw it again, and I'm glad I saw it again because I I was able to remember it better after having seen it because I really felt like I'd just
0: forgotten it entirely. But um, it's an epic. It's definitely an epic. It is. It's an epic, 166 minutes long, but that does make it 40 minutes shorter than Killers of the Flower Moon. So it is the short film of the pairing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I do have to ask you, before we talk about it, is Spaghetti Western... Yeah. An acceptable term in 2023 <laughs> I, 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 just, I, I feel like new people Were quite happy to talk about Spaghetti Westerns back in the 70s and the yeah. 80s And now yeah. it just seems a bit racist Oh did it really? Okay yeah Oh I don't God. know. So I feel like nobody calls Japanese movies sushi dramas. Sushi drama. That's what's a bit. It's like you know, like there's a there's a whole burgeoning world of Nigerian yeah. cinema, and yeah. nobody calls them all oh, those yam movies. Oh, you yeah. know, that's a bit racist, isn't it? Yeah. You can't say that. Mm. Okay. And somehow spaghetti western fits in that same box in yeah. my mind. Yeah. I feel like you know, Italian American western may be okay, but yeah, yeah, food stuff. Come on. Or pasta western, you couldn't say that. It doesn't make it
1: any better. Um, boy, guilty as. <laughs> charged yeah i've always heard it so i've I used it but um um yeah italian american westerns i guess so he it was shot in italy though most of his films it were was, shot yeah, in it italy it was yeah
0: a few exteriors and yeah. yeah
1: so italian american almost makes it sounds like it's uh, people of italian heritage who've grown up in the united states we'll have to come up with a new oh. um a new term
0: for it, you're right. Yeah, the That's Harmonica cool. movies, I think, is what we should call them. So so uh, uh, I'd never seen one of these. Yeah. This is um, a relatively late-ish film by Sergio Leone. So he yeah. was you know, Italian director of Westerns. By the time this film came around in 1969, he had kind of sworn off Westerns. So he'd made all the kind of man-with-no-name movies yeah. with Clint Eastwood, and he decided he didn't want to make any more, but I think Paramount offered him a huge amount of money. Um, So he accepted uh, the gig. The film was apparently a flop when it was released in the US. Uh, But interestingly, it is the seventh highest grossing film of all time in France. Hmm. And the third highest grossing film of all time in Germany. Hmm. So this film had a massive life in Europe. Uh, Out of interest, would you like to guess what the number one highest grossing film of all time in France is? It's got to be a Jerry Lewis movie. <laughs> <laughs> Could it be? Yeah. Uh, no, no, maybe more crass than that. Actually, uh, it is Titanic. Oof. It's the highest-grossing film ever in France. My heart goes on. Um, Celine Dion must be what sold that. Yeah. Would you? Uh, I bet you won't guess what is the highest-grossing film of all time in Germany. Oh, it's got to be a Fussbinder, uh, uh Fear Eats Soul. It's got to be. It's to be fast. Uh, if only. No, it's Jungle Book. Disney's Jungle Book is the third <laughs> is the highest grossing film of all time in Germany. Explain oh, well, that one. Yeah. Um so uh so the film was uh made uh, fairly lavishly uh in 1968. Uh it stars Henry Fonda playing against type as a bad guy, Jason Robards, Charles Bronson as a as the kind of the Clint Eastwood character. Claudia Cardinale, who is uh, Italian, uh, as the love interest, and in, uh, Sergio Leone said that apparently the main reason he hired her was because she was Italian, he could get tax breaks. Yeah, yeah. So the, the film industry has never changed. Well has casted, it. Yeah. Shall I recap the story? Oh, please do. <laughs> So this film is set in the American West mm. in, I think, the 1880s, something like that. that it's never expressed, yeah. he said. That is my guess. Yeah. Um, we are in the American West and the railroad is coming. So Yay. the film opens with a lone gunman with a harmonica. This is Charles Bronson uh, meeting three waiting assassins as he gets off a train in the middle of nowhere and he kills all of them. Uh, meanwhile... At the McBain Ranch in Sweetwater, there is another set of gunmen led by Frank Henry Fonda who murder Brett McBain and his children, leaving the ranch abandoned. Um, We're 25 minutes into the film here and we have had two scenes. This film is very, very leisurely. Mm -hmm. Uh, It turns out that uh, all this killing is part of a plot to buy land for railroad tycoon Mr. Morton for cheap so that he can build his rails to the California coast. So, when Jill McBain, uh, Brett McBain's new widow, uh, arrives, she finds her family dead, she inherits the farm, and she becomes the new problem for Morton, the railroad developer. She is caught between Frank, the killer, Harmonica Guy, who is out for revenge, and Cheyenne, played by Jason Robards, who is a, a local outlaw. I'm guessing a local Mexican outlaw. Is he supposed to be Mexican? Um, yeah. Jason Robards clearly not Mexican in any way, <laughs> but I, I suspect his character is supposed to be a Mexican. He's a good guy. I'm not sure. And the big question the film asks is, when the shooting stops and the dust clears, hmm. who will be left standing?
1: Yes. And if any one of them will be a suitor for Jill McBain, the widow. I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, because everybody wants her. She is the only only woman to appear on screen, pretty much in the whole film. So Just about. Yeah. The, the people are not presented with many options. I got, so I know I've already said this in the in the in the, the run up, but this film is fabulous. I cannot believe I haven't seen any yeah. Sergio Leone films before. This is like this film is tailor made for me. Yeah, exactly. I know. It's it's very very dialogue light. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so there are loads of great silent scenes where where the action uh, tells you the story. The camera tells you the story without words. Yeah. There is great music from Ennio Morricone. Yeah. Fantastic, memorable music. Incredible cinematography. Yeah. Whew. Sergio Leone. Wow. Knows where to put the camera. Yep. Um, there are these incredible deep focus shots where there is you know action happening in the in the foreground and then Loads and loads of action happening way, way in the background, and it's all taken in the same. Shot. It's so lavish. They've built like a whole town. There are horses. There are 2,000 railroad workers. There is an actual train. There is a whole town shot from a crane. It's all huge. And then he contrasts all that hugeness with some of the closest close-ups I have seen in a long time. He fills the screen. It's a scope, massive widescreen, filled just with Charles Bronson's eyes. And he's not shy about holding that shot. Yeah. And then you know, and when Henry Fonda turns up as a bad guy, it's just fantastic. He's so good at being bad. Yeah. The, the action is impeccable. The sense of of space, you know where everybody is and you know what is happening. And in a shootout, you know, that's not trivial to, to determine you know where all the participants are, who's in danger, who is not. It's you know, it's very competent technical yeah. filmmaking. Great, silent filmmaking. As all the finest filmmaking is good yeah. filmmaking is silent filmmaking. Yeah. I thought this was a sensation.
1: First fifteen minutes, just like uh, there will be blood, no dialogue, really. Yeah.
0: And uh, yeah, absolutely, you're right. In fact, I wonder whether um, there will be blood is being self conscious about exactly that. Yeah. Well, and yeah, it, well, you talk about the leisurely
1: um, pace of filmmaking. Those first fifteen minutes actually basically characterize three people who are going to be dead. With before the end of the scene, right? <laughs> and it's all yes. to sort of develop the one guy who shows up at the end of that scene, Charles Bronson, as uh, one of the main characters. Um, but it's all about the atmosphere. You get so much about the Western atmosphere, the building of the railroad. Um, there's a lot of production design going on there. Um, and some uh, early on, you're just introduced to fantastic filmmaking. And I think there's that scene where one of the characters is just swatting a fly off of his face. And it's just... <laughs> It takes minutes to get rid of this fly, and <laughs> but you get so much about those characters, and then they're throwaway characters.
0: Yeah. They're dead.
1: They're dead, but you get an idea of the whole West and what the whole picture is going to be within the first 15 minutes, and it is going to be a leisurely storytelling, um, but it's fantastic. It's so visual so strong the man is in love with bronson's face i mean and bronson is not a handsome guy but his face is a story map in itself and there are a lot of close-ups i love that kind of filmmaking because very often he will have a close-up but there is something in the depth of the of the angle of the frame where you're getting a little bit more story one of the most um noticeable moments for me is um and again this is a production design thing too it's i think it's when uh, Bronson is sort of helping Fonda not get killed by his own man in this town. <laughs> yes. And uh, you see the qu- the town gets quiet once the gunshots start happening. You, you know, it's a busy little town, and all of a sudden it gets more and more quiet. And then in the back, you can just see the blacksmith's... um shop and it's just churning out black, black smoke. And that's kind of I mean, obviously very ominous for what's about to happen. And it's just wonderful. I mean, it's not, I don't think it's that easy to produce that much smoke in the 1960s. You've got to know what you're burning. And it just seems so realistic. And it's just this wonderful detail. And that's, again, deep, deep in the frame behind a lot of the action. But it tells story. I
0: think it seems ludicrous to ring a spoiler bell for a 55-year-old film. But shall we ring the spoiler bell? certainly, I, I, it would have been spoiled for me before today because I had never seen this film. So I am going, I am yeah. going to ring the bell. I need, I, a man needs to have a hobby. Yeah. I found mine. <laughs> I'm going to ring his bell. Um, so there, so there is kind of some, uh, story beats, uh, that are worth, um, talking about. This, this kind of the, the film, you know, ends up, you know, offering an opinion about. I suppose, industrialization and, um, you know, the March of Progress and, you know, what happens to the little guy. There is a kind of social commentary, even though it's a pretty simple story. I mean, the story is credited to three people, isn't it? It's yeah. it's um, Leone himself, plus Dario Argento and Bernardo Bertolucci. This yeah. is three guys, you know, three absolute giants came yeah. up with the story. And you kind of think, well, surely that was a pretty quick afternoon, wasn't it? There's not a lot of story in this film. And then um, Leone wrote the script with Sergio Donati, who had previously written for a few dollars more and and uh, dozens and dozens of other films, all of them schlock. So um, four different people worked on the story. But the story is very simple, but it does does have a little bit of a moral behind it. I mean, I suppose it suggests that, you know, industrialization, um, the advance of the modern comes at a great cost. The the guy who was the railroad owner Mr. Morton you know he is literally railroading his way over other people's land and murdering anyone who gets in his way yep. you know, and that character kind of would fit right into a film about modern day billionaires i think mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's like you know, well you know he's sort of like an 1880 Zuckerberg in a way isn't he he has the technology and he's just going to roll straight over with it and yeah. and keep going until he reaches the sea and he doesn't really care who gets in the way or who tries to stop him um, so that feels fairly contemporary, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think we in the film, we just didn't just, I think we just
1: talked about a film earlier in this podcast and it feels very <laughs> similar to that in some ways too.
0: Yeah, 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 absolutely. So I think they do kind of go hand in hand. Um, uh, one way that it's a bit of a poor cousin to um, Flowers of the Killer Moon is the sexual politics of this film though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, insofar as, I mean, we we kind of alluded earlier on, there is one woman in this film there, there is McBain's daughter who is kind of killed pretty much as soon as she arrives on the screen, but otherwise there is just Claudia Cardinale, there is just Jill McBain yeah. um, and it turns out, oh she's a sex worker um, yep. <laughs> and, and she is kind of largely treated as an object by, by all of the other characters she is someone, either someone to protect or she is someone to paw at, Yeah. Um, uh, Jason Robards even tells her twice that she ought to put up with sexual assault because, you know, that's OK. Um, and, and largely, I would say the camera treats her in a similar way to the other characters. I think the camera is probably more interested in her chest than in her, her dialogue. Yeah. You know, she has very little agency in the story. She is kind of treated by by everybody involved as a bit of an object which dates the film. Um and I think, you know, a feistier, uh, more opinionated Jill um might have made for a more interesting film. And if you were going to rewrite it or remake it again today, that would be a little bit different, I think. And then I have another problem with the film, which yeah. is it's um this is almost something which the cliche squad ought to be phoned about, which is the use of deformity to symbolise evil. Because you know, Morton is evil yeah. and he he has polio. I'm guessing, I'm guessing yeah. that's what he has. Um, or had had, you know, yeah. he's a bad guy and he's a cripple. Um, and you know, in, in that very first scene, one of the assassins, you know, he has a divergent squint. Yeah. Um, and he's bad because mm-hmm. he's got a weird looking face. Yeah. Um, I was reading a story that apparently when Henry Fonda first arrived on set, he was so enamored with this idea he was going to play a bad guy that he had dark brown contact lenses Ooh. and a dark mustache, both of which you know, were going to show that he was evil. Yeah. Um, yeah you know, so like you know at least Sergio only got him to change that um and, and you know the camera loves the kind of like the pale blue eyes of the yeah. of the characters in this film yeah. um you know and that, you know, it's a great opportunity for a bit of cinematography um uh, but you know overall you know what I loved 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 this film yeah it's
1: it's a classic for good reason. I think it is a fantastic film. Um I think it, it's it's funny to me that it's shorter than, you know, the modern epics of today because um it feels like it definitely takes its time telling the story. Um but it's it's definitely a story worth telling. I, I looked at the clock when the first significant um dialogue scene comes and it's about an hour into the film, <laughs> which is amazing. Um And uh, it's a scene between Cheyenne and Jill in the house after her husband's been um, sort of buried and gone and and what's she going to do kind of thing. Um, And part of that is uh, these films were not really made for the Italian audience. I mean, they were – I think they were – made. A lot of the a lot of the actors are Italian, yeah, but they're speaking English, so we know that they're going to be dubbed, and I think that's one reason he didn't want to use a lot of dialogue because he realized everything was going to have to be dubbed, and it probably wouldn't look very good. So it's it's true that you get a lot of close ups, but you don't often have close ups with non English speaking actors unless um, they're just listening, right? I mean, it's generally yeah. you sometimes get close ups with with dialogue on the the key actors, but um, but everything is really about showing and not telling, and. It's you know when when that scene does happen you kind of realize oh the audio is really I, I notice this the audio is totally different for Jill's lines to Jason Robarn's lines in that first intimate substantial dialogue scene and it's probably because she may have been speaking Italian or broken English and. Robards is, Robards is kind of an odd choice for the role in the first place, and his cowboy English is not very cowboy as far as I know. I mean, I don't know historical dialect very well, but um, it's a funny scene, and I think it's it's sort of this admission that the more you start having people talk in films, the the disservice you're often doing to the service and the art form. It's really about just showing pictures, and Leone goes to far as he, I'm sure he directed Bronson to hold that harmonica improperly just because he wanted to show more of... Um, Bronson's mouth and his face and his, his, his you know, all the wrinkles and scars. Um, he he holds, he, no one would play a harmonica the way that they angle <laughs> that Bronson does. And I think it's, again, it's just about he's in love with the faces and he gets them on screen because that's where you're going to see a lot of the stories and how people are reacting to certain things that they're seeing and using their faces to act. And I think that is also something that makes this um, film really powerful. Um, it's you know it's somewhat operatic in the in the story because it's so epic and big and there's you know life and death all over the place and they're building entire towns or railroads and then there there are some segments where there's operatic music too. It just feels that there's this very mm. Italian take on the barbarism of settling the American West and when you hear these operatic. Um, arias and, and scenes taking place um, beneath them. It's just really, it makes it, it just gives the film this weight that it's held on to for years and years and years. So it's 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 epic in a good way, I think, because it, it looks
0: epic as well as um, sort of being epic storytelling. I have a question for you, yeah. um, something which I did not understand, and you may well be able to explain it to me, which is... Um, there's a long teased out backstory mm-hmm. uh for Charles Bronson's character and so it takes you know more or less the entire length of the film uh before uh the film explains why Bronson wants to get revenge on yeah. Frank yeah um and you know, at the end it's you know it's a unforgettable scene when you yeah. get this flashback to Bronson's um you know boyhood yep and Um, you know he is you know effectively you know tortured i mean in this absolutely horrible way by frank um is but what i did not understand was is bronson's character is he supposed to be a native first nations american is he supposed to be mexican is he supposed to be you know a, a white waspish kid is is there some kind of Subtext there Which I As a British person Watching this film Do not understand I was Yeah Again I didn't remember This film very well So I think he's supposed To be a Mexican
1: boy Right okay um, And I think They're probably Stealing like old Spanish So I think that's probably Part of Henry Fonda's um, As, as um, What's his name Is he Hank Hank or Henry no, I mean, in the film His name is Frank Fr- uh, Frank, Frank, Frank He's probably helping Frank. Steal land from these people That was the feeling I had So um either like very old spanish settlers who'd been in the united states and um or mexican settlers um in that area hard to say but that was the take i had yes and um the harmonica piece is really interesting cuz it seems that henry should or that <laughs> henry fonda frank should know who harmonica is given the the history there, but I guess enough time has passed where he would have forgotten this little kid who he'd stuffed a in uh, harmonica into his face. Um, but the, the whole setup of their relationship is kind of strange because Frank says he doesn't know harmonica at all, but at the beginning, in that first scene, isn't harmonica
0: going to meet Frank, and those are Frank's henchmen at the railroad station. It is Frank's henchmen who have arrived to kill him when he arrives. Yeah, I don't understand that either. It
1: doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't matter. Um, But the harmonica is given, it becomes a character, and it seems like he only knows the one song, and and that's his his song to identify him. and, And Cheyenne, Robard's character, has a song to identify him as well. So it's just Morricone doing these little musical tricks to... Let us know whose scene it is or whatnot, but it does seem their their relationship is central to the whole story, and it it does play out over the entire three hours. But you wonder it doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you when you start to analyze it. I'm afraid to say, uh,
0: well, it's just these are kind of like big archetypal characters, aren't they? So you know they're not small, subtle characters. Yeah. um you know they are you know, big, bold types yeah. who have been printed massive on the screen, isn't yeah. it? It's like, you know, these are like, I guess they are like the Marvel characters of the 1960s. They yeah. are big, larger-than-life characters, yeah. you know, with big, larger-than-life epic problems and stories. Yeah.
1: I was going to say, for your question, I think it's about um, someone stealing land from uh, Mexicans. And I think that's what the whole story of the film is, kind of a ah. So it's like this personalized version of, I'm one guy stealing land from a Mexican family just the way the United States has stolen and, and taken lands from Mexico. So I think it, it's it's a this beautiful little um, standalone scene to represent the whole theme of the film. Um, but, yeah, w- you, you've you looked at Bronson for, what, three hours and you thought he just seems like uh, some, some white cowboy from somewhere. But no, <laughs> he's a Mexican kid who got a harmonica stuffed into his mouth and then had to blow it for 40 years before he could get revenge, I guess. I don't
0: know. It's an odd, it's an, it's an odd beat, yeah, for sure. I mean, he's an unusual actor, Charles Bronson, and not somebody I particularly like to watch. No, you know, not not someone I'm an enormous fan of. But I think he's just fantastic in this. Fantastic, he's fantastic in this film. Absolutely,
1: yeah. And I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I, t- I can't name any other film of his that I actually really enjoy, but he's fantastic in this role. And I don't know where it, I think it falls, kind of towards the middle of his career or late, latter part of his career, but. Um, He does well, and he just looks, he looks great. He looks great in close-ups on what would have been, you know, in the the old cinema days, a big, big screen. You're seeing a lot of Bronson. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: It's not always a pretty sight,
0: but he does a very good job in the film. No offense to Charles Bronson, he is not a handsome man, but he has an interesting face, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely.
1: And that's the kind of face that uh, I think Leone loves, so... But, you know, everyone's kind of against type. I think Robards doesn't really fit that character very well. Fonda does a great job, but it's uncomfortable. And, you know, the very first thing you see him do is shoot a kid. I mean, it's like... <laughs> Leone's not afraid to to kill children in this film, and I think it's it just gets right to the heart of how evil they are. So Henry Fonda could sort of be a good guy, but if you can kill a kid in the first the first moment you're on the screen, then, okay, you're <laughs> badass. I don't want to mess Yeah, you.
0: you've rubbed out the question marks there, haven't yeah. you? It's kind of, oh. How bad it, is this
1: guy? There's this one oh, uh, that bad. I think that there's it's not really a love scene between uh, um 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 I why do I keep forgetting Frank <laughs> It's Frank and Jill, isn't it? Yeah, it's Frank and Jill. There's this love scene that's just super uncomfortable because it's it's quite rapey ultimately, but it's also yeah. just it's just weird. You've got the age differences there. Um and it's uncomfortable because there the Fonda really wants, Frank really wants the land more than anything else, and it seems like Jill's willing to go along with him, and she does, she has no agency in this film really, and in that scene, it's really quite uncomfortable. It just seems like a relic of a completely different era of storytelling, but yeah. is weird, and just it's just Henry Fonda as a, a like a a love scene actor. Now, I don't know if that works. Have we ever seen that before? <laughs> so it's, 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 a, it's a weird it's, scene. I, would, I, would, I, would, I probably would try and edit that scene if I were to re-edit
0: the thing because it just seems odd. But I wonder if it's a very clever use of an actor that we, you know, we never normally see in that. Yeah. In those shoes, isn't it? Yeah. Well, ha- having spoken so long about Charles Bronson, yeah. uh, I, I, I think that is an ideal introduction to my favourite game, oh, yeah, which yeah. is I think we should play, <laughs> and I've already given away the answer, let's yeah. play Who Am I?
1: <laughs> Who Am I? tell me why are you charles bronson i know why i'm charles bronson
0: but why are you- i would love to think i was as cool as charles bronson <laughs> in once upon a time in the west he's, i mean i did watch the film kind of thinking he's a he's he looks a little bit like the clint eastwood b team it's like yeah. you know, when, when you can't get clint <laughs> this yeah. is the guy that clint sends as his kind of his substitute but he's you know he, he's kind of strong and silent and uh, has this kind of unblinking gaze and his beautiful blue eyes and yeah. I wish I was as cool as Charles Bronson but I am not I'm yeah. realistic and, and when he does rough up Claudia Cardinale for, for basically no reason it's, it's hard to like him without yeah. reservation I think yeah. so I, I got to the end of these films and I, I did have a think about what, is there anybody that I sort of I do identify with without, without much reservation here and I think it is um, Lionel Stander who plays the bartender in the bar in sweetwater in once upon a time oh. uh, because he's like he's only in this one scene oh, yeah. in the bar and there's this kind of completely crazy scene where your child turns up and he's in in handcuffs and then there's this kind of a bit of a face off with with the um, harmonica guy yeah and then uh you, know, you think someone's going to get shot and then he just shoots the chains off his handcuffs and it's yeah. all this kind of big big drama and then at the, at the very end Lionel Standall he has this kind of little moment where he kind of he's looked at all that and he says well, anyway, make sure you go visit my sister. She's got a bar in in, in um, New Orleans. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of that made me think, oh, yeah, I'm that guy. I'm yeah. that guy who's who has the anyway moment after the biggest drama for the last half hour. Yeah. Um, I do remember Lionel Stander largely oh. from a 1980s television series called Heart to Heart, which used to play oh, here on Sunday yeah. evening. Oh, yeah. Uh, where he, he was a rich couple's butler. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and he would get them out of trouble while they were investigating crimes. Oh my God. And uh, as I, as a boy, I somehow imagined maybe that was a that was a reflection of a genuine plausible adult life being being a wealthy couple investigating crimes <laughs> with a butler who would get you out of trouble. So I'm disappointed that my life hasn't taken that particular turn. But it's not too late; it might still happen. Uh, who would you say you were like out of the films
1: we watched this week? I, I'm I've got to be Bronson too. I've got to be Harmonica. Oh. That's his name, Harmonica.
0: Um, You could carry it off there, you see, where I cannot.
1: Well, I've got three short reasons why. Um, I play my instrument poorly, and I think that harmonica (laughs) is not a very good harmonica player, but it serves his character. Um, I like him. I need to ramble. I like to be on the move. Um, oh. But I also can't commit to staying put in the West. That's the other thing. About it. it's like, don't the West is uh, it's big? It's just it's too big, and uh, there's a lot of roaming to do. But you have to roam a lot to get to the next place. So I can't. <laughs> I didn't do so well in the in the West. So I'm gonna say those are my three
0: reasons why I'm harmonica. If, if the film's called Once Upon a Time in the East, yeah, Ugh. near a nice coffee shop in S- a cinema.
1: Sign me up. Yeah, I could spend a <laughs> lifetime there. But the West, uh, no, couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. So uh, there, it's true that there aren't a lot of great characters because these films are so much about evil. (laughs) And people, yeah, you're right. I should feel,
0: I should feel relieved that I don't feel like any of these people. Yeah, well, at
1: least you were serving someone. You were in the bar, you're getting alcohol (laughs) for them and giving them food and nourishment.
0: To be fair, there were two doctors in Killers of the Flower Moon, but they were both bad. Oh my god! I didn't feel like I had much in common with them. (laughs) They were real bad. I mean, they were real bad. <laughs> Not yeah. Bad. What? Uh, well, let's let's try and do our synthesis. We'll try and bring the two films together. So I tell you what. I wrote in my notes. I wrote. Um, these are two films about finding gold in the sand, because yeah. um, it's either you know it's either oil that comes up out of the dirt, or, or in the case of um, uh, Once Upon a Time, it's opportunity that comes up from the the dirt. Yeah. Um, and, and about kind of it's sort of about how you know this potential for great wealth uh, is a great corrupter, I suppose. Um, and then also I read here that it's. Both films are about how the vulnerable can be targeted by bullies and about how money is the root of all evil, how money warps morality and decision-making. You know, that's true in yeah. most walks I of think life. That's I mean, it's the, certainly the true in the film business, yeah. isn't it? As we've learned in the yep. news over recent years. Yeah, I think that's the that's the crux message of both films,
1: is that uh, those who have money want more money. They'll do almost anything to to make sure they get what they want, including, you know, Harming the landscapes, harming the environment, harming other people, and, and ooh, murder in um,
0: really in both films. There's a lot of there's a lot of dying, unnecessarily dying. Um, <laughs> yeah. there, they are. I mean, they are both violent. There's a lot of gunshot murders, isn't there, in yeah. both of these films? And also, they are both very long. Yeah, the Flowers of the Killer Moon does at least have. There's a bit more of a modern subtext, isn't it? It's it's 55 years younger than yeah um, than Once Upon a Time. Um, you know, and it, so it does cast some light on institutional racism, whereas you know, race. Well, I was going to say that race doesn't play much of a role in Once Upon a Time. But you have now pointed out to me that actually Charles Bronson's character, if he is Mexican, um, is yeah. offering um, some insight into the, uh, the impact of race on um, politics and the outcome. Yeah. Uh, even back in the 1880s. And and I did make a note. One of the gunfighters who is waiting for harmonica at the very beginning of the film is black. But otherwise. That's right, yeah. I'm not sure that American First Nation people appear in What's a Time of the West at all.
1: There's one woman in that opening scene in the train station, and she runs out when she senses danger and she's out of there. Yeah, that was it. It's it's very interesting, though, because that film was shot on Navajo land. It credits the Navajo people in the end. Ah, There's nary a Navajo in sight. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, you contrast that to Killers of the Flower Moon, which is shot in Oklahoma and features a lot of um, First Nations actors and uh, characters in the film. So they're totally different in
0: that well, in that in that sense. Um, yeah. One, once Upon a Time in the West very much you know believes in the notion that the, the land that the characters are fighting over didn't belong to anyone yeah. until white people turned up. Yeah. So, yeah. No one's no one owns this until white people yeah. decide to fight over it. Yeah a lot of that film was shot in Italy too that's
1: the other thing uh, certainly a little bit in Arizona and Utah but it was, um, is it Cinecita
0: or Cinecita big studio in, in Rome um, I was, I was going to ask you for your far greater European vocabulary yeah, knowledge know. Cinecita I, I, I was going to say Cine but Citta, I'm sure yeah. that's wrong
1: well it's probably the same it's either Cinecita or Cinecita because of the C before the I I think it's going to be Cinecita for ciao because ciao is spelled C-I-A-O so oh, no. budget I'm going to go with that um one thing you learn I mean it's interesting about landscape that's one thing that I thought about like with once upon a time in the West you, you stick a camera almost anywhere in Monument Valley and you've got a film you know it's just like you have a John Ford
0: film in fact yes
1: yeah. it's so gorgeous. you've got a hundred films yeah you've got every John Ford film basically and and um, you've just got a film it's just so cinematic and also just using Get the rights to Charles Bronson's face, you also get a film. It's just you you can <laughs> just do so much with just the camera. Um and it's a it's a lot harder, I think, when you're just working in 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 a place that's just in, in like settings that just aren't as cinematic. And I think you know, one of the strengths of Killers of the Flower Moon is that um a lot is built up, obviously, a lot of it's production design, but it's it's a great film without having the advantage of just shooting beautiful places all the time. And there are some beautiful moments in that film um, I think it's it's entirely in Oklahoma um, I love the moment when Lily Lily this is Molly's mother is dying and her ancestors sort of come to visit her and they walk yeah. her back out into the prairies and it's just gorgeous and it just it gave me a nostalgia for the West that could have been so it had me thinking in that way whereas I think Once Upon a Time in the West really shows you uh, the reality of conquering the West, those those scenes where there, as you said, thousands of people building a railroad, it looks like they're really building a railroad. Um, mm. And that's, the, you know, the West that actually did happen, the West that, that did become. Um, and I love the way the two films pair together because they're sort of telling the same story, but very different um, scenes and landscapes, great production design in both films, um, even though they're, what, 50-something years apart. Um, just fantastic. Um the other thing that really occurred to me was Quentin Tarantino learned a lot from Sergio Leone. I think he even, <laughs> and he even names a film once upon a time in Hollywood. Is that it? Um, yeah. He He's learned so much. He's learned all the right things from Leone. And it's just, uh, I, I kept thinking, Oh, this is, this is Tarantino. This is Tarantino. This is Tarantino. Um, <laughs> so I think obviously great filmmakers can learn things and can copy other filmmakers to, to really make great stories. And, uh, I, there's this one scene there's it's it's kind of meta because it's a tracking shot of a train track in once Upon a Time in the West that is just yeah. incredible. It's when uh Morton's whole train has been um just shot up. there's just bodies all over there all over the place and you've got a camera obviously on a on a track following this stalled train of carnage and blood and guts and I think that is it it's Frank's character I think who's going back and seeing, yeah, right. Frank's yeah. character is yeah. going back and finding his boss um, crawling next to the, um, this you know he gets to his water but it's this just this puddle it's not a it's not the ocean that he was dreamed of reaching he dreamed of reaching um, but it's just this wonderful shot and it's just widescreen and he's just tracking a train track and it's brilliant and it, it was another one of those moments where I just thought oh Tarantino. <laughs> um, and I wouldn't say those things about Killers of the Flower Moon necessarily because Scorsese is someone who's just done so many different kinds of films um, um, but he's unfamiliar, he's sort of on unfamiliar territory here and I think both of these directors are working kind of in unfamiliar territory but capturing it in uh, different ways I mean uh, Leone made so, so many of those <clears throat> western films that we were talking about um, but a lot of them were done in Italy which is funny
0: Mm. Um, but
1: this one definitely has very real Monument Valley, and they do credit the Navajo. But there aren't any uh, Navajo in the film. So actually, just even the the First Nations
0: content in the two films, it's interesting how much different it is. The the West that could have been. I think you've just come up with the, the name for this this week's episode. Yeah, I,
1: yeah, I loved that. It was a simple moment, barely you know, barely will stand out in the film, but. It's just her ancestors coming to them, coming to her, in, 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 and she, it's a fantasy. Obviously, she's just dying, but she can see the past. She can see where they came from and what they would have looked like, and
0: it's marvelous. I love that scene. Yeah, it is a beautiful moment. Yeah, yeah. Ah, well, okay, yep. Long movies, but yeah, good long movies earn their length. Yeah, I think, and I think both of these they. They, uh, especially Once Upon a Time, but I think even Killers of the Flower Moon, yep. it kind of, it, you know, it it gets away with it. I think maybe it justifies itself. We have just got time yeah. uh, to talk about what's also been playing at this theatre. And I say the same thing every week. I can't remember who goes first. Who's, who's going to go first? Do you want to go first? I will, but I'm going to spoil it again because I want to talk
1: about parts. Two- <laughs> Sorry um, But they're totally related um, Okay And then I'll talk, I did see one film That's not really worth Mentioning too much So um, I listened to a podcast um, It's the New York Times The Daily Uh and they had a Sunday edition called "The Genius Behind Hollywood's Most Indelible Sets." It was uh, it was about Jack Fisk doing the set design work for *Killers of the Flower Moon*. So I think mm. it, it gave me a tremendous insight to to know about it before I saw the film. So I would recommend listeners of the Two Real Cinema Club. If I know you don't listen to other podcasts, but if you ever thought you might want to listen to one, <laughs> that's a single episode that you might want to look up. Um, and then also on, um, I think I've mentioned Mil- Malcolm Gladwell too, his um, revisionist history, though he was actually rebroadcasting something from a podcast called Cautionary Tales, which was also the history of uh, Killers of the Fire Moon. So it goes into Mm. the actual legal anglings and all of that. Um, So they were both really helpful to hear before I saw the film. So So you did your
0: homework this week, yeah.
1: Well, yeah, but I'm not reading books the way you are. I'm illiterate. (laughs) I just sit around listening to podcasts. Oh, no offense to any of our listeners, but... Yeah,
0: that's the best way to get your information, everybody. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, And then I did see a film on Netflix called Fair Play. Okay. Which I'm not going to (laughs) recommend. But I saw it, and it it had some interesting bits, but there were no real likable characters, and
0: um, I don't know. What's the 10-second pitch for Fair Play?
1: Um, Okay, Uh, a couple of sort of uh, stock traders, uh, Wall Street traders, um, are in a forbidden relationship because you can't date someone at work, and then she gets promoted, he gets jealous, Uh, then someone gets hit with a, like a kitchen knife or something like oof. that after some kind of ugly sex violent rape scenes and
0: oof yeah so it's so it's it's basic instinct but with a bit more wolf of wall street yeah there you go you did it thank you without even seeing right. it you see it <laughs> we've just saved we've just saved you 2 hours of your lives. So. What did you see? Uh, I uh we were away in uh Devon last week. Yeah. Uh getting rained on a lot. Um Oh so you saw 10 films. <laughs> so, so well um but the, the the internet connection was so poor that we only managed to actually get to see one whole length feature film. Uh but we it was a good one. We watched Spirited Away Ooh, uh, again. Wow. So the 2001 um Studio Ghibli film from Hayao Miyazaki um just such a landmark film. There's not many films that I will call perfect, but Spirited Away is mm-hmm. really nearly there. It is beautiful. And uh, somehow kind of with its sort of themes of, you know, slightly scary monsters and shape changes, and it felt like a very appropriate film for Halloween. So that was our Halloween film for this year. Um, yeah, Spirited Away is still,
1: you know, a really terrific piece of work. God, I love the moment where the parents are sitting at the counter eating and then just become <laughs> pigs right pigs
0: yeah oh, it's funny because it's true yeah that's cinema that's cinema right there um well uh that about wraps it up except for two things. Uh, I'm going to get you to do the socials oh. now at the bottom of the pod. Oh, I think I have to go back to the other document. Who's, who, where can you <laughs> find us well, I've spun days? that on you, haven't I? Because I haven't memorized it. Where did, where did you put it on the document? Have I, you moved I put it, it right here at the bottom of the dock, just underneath also playing at this theatre. Oh, my God. It's way down there. I'm like.
1: God, we've said a lot of stuff, yeah. Uh,
0: (laughs) Yeah, I made a lot of notes, but it was a lot of film.
1: On Instagram, we are at Two Real Cinema Club. That makes sense. You can read the blog at club.com. You can comment on the YouTube channel and email us at tworealcinemaclub at gmail.com. Love to get messages there. And let us know what you think. Ask us questions, correct our mistakes, please tell your friends about us or leave a review if you can. Could I say one last thing, though? I be- you can- is, it, is it promoting another podcast? No. Oh, no. okay, yes. <laughs> it's this one mom- one thing that I had. An idea just came to me about those two films that we just talked about, and I just want oh, yes. to throw it in there at the last minute. I know this is out of place and unorthodox, but I think it's important. Um, there's this element of lawlessness in both films and in killers it's bible the bible and god are sort of used to justify killing um and it's very interesting that the osage mostly convert to catholicism uh yeah but once upon in the uh, time in the west is largely like void of religion and that's also an excuse for the lawlessness it's very interesting that Either way, you can get away with murder. I guess that's what I wanted to say. And it just just <laughs> happened upon my
0: brain as I was talking about the socials. I'm sorry about that. but uh... I don't know why talking about Instagram addresses made you think of murdering somebody, but um, X, X, maybe that is a natural X. human reaction. Yeah. Damn you, Zuckerberg. Yes. Next time. Uh, next yeah. time we are watching uh, The Killer, the yes. new David Fincher film, yes. and comparing it to... The Killer, the Chow Yun Fat film, directed by John Woo, from 1989, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, landmark Hong Kong uh, Chinese action film. Yeah. Uh, two killers, who will come out on top? Join us next time. Yeah. Uh, in the meantime, I uh, think I think we should have a, a serious chat at the, at the at the popcorn counter about why films are so blamin' long. Yes. Join us for that. Have uh, ideas. Always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone, goodbye.